Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another live edition of Monitor Monday. On today's broadcast, former Inspector General for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Dan Levinson, joins us this morning. Mr. Levinson is making his first broadcast appearance and stepping down in May as healthcare's top watchdog. Also on today's broadcast, opioid manufacturer Insys Therapeutics will pay $225 million to settle the government's criminal and civil investigations into the company's marketing. With details will be famed Wilson Law Attorney Mary Inman. She's calling in live from London. The intersection of rural health and social determinants of health will be reported by Alan Fink-Samnick. The House Ways and Means Committee holds hearings on Wednesday on Medicare for All. Dennis Jones is standing by to report on the proposal to shift the U.S. to a single-payer system. Healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel has the RAC report, and healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who's making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 RCM. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Right after this broadcast, I'm headed to Las Vegas for the annual meeting of the Case Management Society of America, where I'll be giving two presentations, including one on opening day with Dr. Juliet Ugarte Hopkins, another member of the RAC Monitor Editorial Board. If you're going to be at the conference, be sure to find us. And as Dr. Ugarte Hopkins told me, just go in the middle of the room and call out, Marco, on to some news. A few weeks ago on this broadcast, I talked about preoperative testing prior to cataract extraction. Since we had some technical difficulties, let me recap. 19 years ago, a study involving almost 20,000 patients determined that there was no clinical benefit to any preoperative testing before cataract surgery. Yet this practice is still widespread, often driven by protocols that require the test, including often an EKG, chest X-ray, and a battery of blood tests be performed. It's estimated that over $50 million per year is spent by Medicare on these tests. I urge everyone to go back to their institutions and advocate to change those protocols. Well, a study was released last week that took this one step further and looked at what happens with the results of all of those pre-op EKGs. And they found that 15% of patients who had a routine pre-op EKG and had no previous history of heart disease went on to have further cardiac testing. While at first this may seem to be a good thing, finding a disease that wasn't known to be present, in the vast majority of cases, the final results were either negative or clinically worthless. The authors of this study estimated that Medicare spends over $35 million a year on this essentially worthless testing. So once again, I ask you to go back and find out what your hospital requires, and if any testing is required, work to get that changed. Now, the articles I referenced are on the first material tabs for you to download. In other news, UnitedHealthcare announced last week that it will soon be conducting site-of-service reviews on arthroscopic and foot surgeries scheduled to be done in outpatient hospitals in certain states. 
That means they will not only be reviewing for the medical necessity of the surgery, but also reviewing to determine if the surgery can be safely performed in an ambulatory surgery center based on the patient's medical history. If so, they will not approve the surgery to be done at the hospital as an outpatient. So if you're in California, Colorado, New Jersey, or New York, be sure you carefully review your UHC authorizations. Finally, Saturday was the QIO switchover date. If your important message from Medicare does not have the correct phone number, you cannot collect payment from the patient even if the QIO rules in your favor on a discharge appeal. It still boggles my mind that Levanta allowed hospitals to sign the new memorandum of agreement at any time prior to the switchover, but Keypro would not let hospitals sign until June 8th. Now, either Keypro has no concept of customer service or Levanta is violating the rules by allowing signatures prior to the effective date. Either way, be sure your forms are updated today. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the Monitor Monday RAC Report, here is Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I want to talk about how the federal funding to states impact RAC audits. More specifically, settlements of RAC audits. This is where we talk about the timing of settlement discussions, how important that can be. This past week, I was in a mediation in Oregon. The underlying facts included a healthcare provider who accepted Medicaid and was accused of a half a million dollar overpayment. In this particular case, mediation ended at an impasse, and the reason it ended at an impasse was because of the FMAP. The federal medical assistance percentage, that's the percentage rate used to determine the matching funds allocated annually to certain states. The FMAPs vary by state from a statutory floor of 50% up to 73.05%. In layman's terms, FMAPs are the percentages that the federal government pays a state for the state managing Medicaid. So interestingly, in my case in Oregon, we asked the mediator whether the state agency would settle for an amount that did not include the extrapolation. Because remember, as everybody I'm sure knows, extrapolation is a highly debatable process and can make an alleged overpayment into the millions of dollars. Well, according to 42 CFR 433.316, a state agency is required to pay back to the federal government the FMAP amount within one year of an alleged overpayment. So in Oregon, the FMAP amount is 62.56%. In this case, that 62.56% equaled over $400,000. Well, the underlying amount without the extrapolation or the base amount was less than $8,000. So our first offer was the base amount, but $8,000, whereas the state of Oregon was looking more at $400,000. You could say we were a bit apart. And the reason for the disparate amount was the FMAP. Had the state not already have paid back the federal government, we may have been able to settle the case. 
very quickly we realized that the reason for the state's large number is because it was because of the FMAP. This thwarts settlement in cases. If a state has already paid back the federal government's percentage, then the state can't settle for less than the amount paid. Theoretically, the state could accuse providers of arbitrary amounts, be forced to pay back money to the federal government, and these amounts are not final, and they're not going to settle for less. In rack audits that involve Medicaid, because of the federal regulations that require the state to pay back the FMAPs within one year, be aware that the state may be restricted from a reasonable settlement you may want to try to settle before the year is up. Thank you. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole. That was Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Mary Inman, Dennis Jones, Alan Fink-Samnick, and our special guest, former Inspector General Dan Levinson. This is Monday. It's June 10th. You're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. The final rule for the 2019 inpatient rehabilitation facility payment includes provisions to remove the functional independence measure from the IRF facility patient assessment instrument. It also calls for incorporating certain data elements from the quality indicators into the case mix classification system to assign patients to a case mix group. As the transition date of October 1st approaches, IRF professionals need to finalize preparations for the change. For help, Register to attend an important webcast for IRF professionals. Join Angela Phillips for the exclusive Rack Monitor webcast titled 2020 IRF PPS. Be prepared for less work, more risk. The program is tomorrow at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. To register, click on the upcoming webcast tab in today's broadcast. Save $40 by simply entering the coupon code MONDAY at checkout. Thanks, Mike. And a reminder about Auditor Monitor. You can learn about the types of audits you can expect and how to best defend yourself. Subscribe to the Auditor Monitor. It's your complete source of healthcare auditing. It's now available at the Rack Monitor store. And now for the Monitor Money Risky Business Report, here is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Thank you so much for being with us. And David, in light of the fact that Dan Levinson is with us this morning, what could be possibly risky this morning that we need to know about? Good morning, Chuck. So last week, Stephen Greenspan questioned whether it's permissible to challenge the decision to reopen a claim as part of a TPE audit. His question is an astute one that harkens back to a troubling case we first reported when it came out back in 2012. So in Palomar Medical Center versus Sibelius, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals concluded that a hospital was not allowed to challenge Iraq's decision to reopen claims. The issue is language that appeals appears in 42 CFR section 405-980, and I think Emily is sending that number out for those who like to look at the actual text. So that regulation sets out three limits on reopening a claim. A contractor can reopen within one year for any reason, after a year for up to 48 months for good cause, and after 48 months for fraud or similar fault. The problem is a sentence in the regulation that says that you may not appeal a decision by a contractor, quick ALJ, or a MAC on whether to reopen a claim. The court relied on that language to conclude that the hospital was not allowed to argue that the contractor lacked good cause and was therefore prohibited from reopening the claims. In essence, the court concluded that while a contractor must have good cause, 
courts can't supervise the contractor's decision to ensure that they exercise their judgment reasonably. Now, that decision really bothered me when I read it in 2012, and it still bothers me today. The idea that an agency can have a standard it must follow, but that the courts lack authority to review the agency's conduct, seems like an affront to due process. The bottom line is that Stephen is correct that an attempt to challenge a contractor's decision to reopen the claims may be rejected by the court. But that doesn't mean the appeals shouldn't be filed. The Palomar result seems terribly unfair. The good news is that there's reason to think that other courts may rule differently. As the Supreme Court revisits various administrative law principles, it appears to be taking positions that provide less blind deference to agency decisions. The idea that no one can make sure that an agency or a contractor follows the law has to be consistently challenged. If we don't, we may find ourselves singing a song by moving pictures that I've always liked, despite its self-centered theme. What about me? It isn't fair. I've had enough, and I want my share. Back to you, Chuck. What about me? Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredericks and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. The House Ways and Means Committee holds hearings Wednesday on Medicare for All. For the latest on the proposal to shift the U.S. to a single-payer system, here is Dennis Jones. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning, Chuck. Thank you very much. Chuck, I had so many decisions to make last night. The Stanley Cup playoffs were on NBC, the Tony Awards were on CBS, and CNN aired Democratic candidates speaking about Medicare for All in advance of Wednesday's House Ways and Means Committee hearing on the Medicare for All bill. I don't have to tell you which one I watched. This Wednesday, the House Ways and Means Committee will hold a hearing on Medicare for All. The Medicare for All bill, as you know, details a national health system that would create a single-payer health care system in all 50 states. The bill would enhance Medicare's benefits, eliminate co-pays, deductions, and premiums, and extend coverage to all American residents. Projected costs for a 2017 version of the Medicare for All bill are estimated at $32 trillion over 10 years. But note, however, that a recent projection from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services expects national health care annual spending to reach $6 trillion by 2019, that's this year. Uh, there was a hearing in April in the House Rules Committee, but this hearing will mark the first time the proposal is considered by a committee that has jurisdiction over health care issues. The Committee of Ways and Means is the chief tax rating committee of the United States House of Representatives. It has jurisdiction over the issues of banking revenue and appropriations. This includes revenue-related aspects of Social Security system and Medicare. The House version of Medicare for All is sponsored by Representative Pramila Jayapal, a co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. In Representative Jayapal's home state of Washington, uh, a version of Medicare for All, kind of a Medicare for All light, has advanced even farther and even faster. On May 13th, Washington Governor Jay Inslee signed a Cascade Care bill into law. Cascade Care is a state-run health care system some say is similar to Medicare for All. 
When signing the bill, Governor Inslee proclaimed, today I am pleased to announce that we will be proposing a public option in the state of Washington to take yet another significant step in the goal of universal coverage in the state of Washington. The Cascade Care Bill allows the state of Washington to contract with one, possibly more, carriers to provide a state-defined insurance plan. Claims will be processed by the insurance plan, but coverage and out-of-pocket costs will be defined by the state. The Cascade Care coverage will begin in 2021, and the coverage will be available to anyone in the individual market. It has been reported that the Cascade Care or that Cascade Care will set reimbursement rates at 160% of the Medicare rate. Meanwhile, in New York, the Hospital Association of New York testified against the New York Health Care Act, which would establish a single-payer system in New York. The Hospital Association stated that they support the goal of universal coverage, but they oppose the passage of the New York Health Act because of concerns about how a state-based single-payer system would be funded how hospitals and doctors would be paid, and the effects such system would have on healthcare innovation. Haney's, the Hospital Association of New York State, expressed serious concerns that under this bill, provider reimbursement across the state would be reduced, which would lead to financial instability, reduced services, and constrained access to care. Other than that, they're fine with it. Nationally, the scheduled hearing for Medicare for All before one of the most powerful House committees is a big win for progressive Democrats. However, it's clear that Medicare for All will not become the health system for the United States during a Republican administration. To Democrats, Medicare for All may be one singular sensation, but for Republicans in the Senate and the White House, Medicare for All is a walk through Hades town. Okay, I admit it. I did catch a little bit of the Tony Awards last night. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ed, very much. That was Dennis Jones. Dennis is a patient financial services administrator at Montefiore Nyack Hospital in Nyack, New York. As part of its $225 billion settlement with the government last week, opioid manufacturer Incest Therapeutics had to bribe physicians to prescribe their opioid painkiller. Now, calling in live from London with more on this major story is famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Chuck. Last month, we brought you news about opioid-producing giant Insys and its former CEO, John Kapoor, who was convicted of racketeering stemming from the company's alleged practice of bribing doctors to over-prescribe the company's main product, Subsys, a fentanyl spray that is 100 times stronger than morphine and can cost tens of thousands of dollars a month. Subsys is normally prescribed to cancer patients who have developed a tolerance to around-the-clock opioid therapy. Mr. Kapoor was also accused of violations of the anti-kickback statute, which prohibits medical providers from paying or receiving kickbacks, remuneration, or anything of value in exchange for referrals of patients who will receive treatment paid for by government health care programs like Medicare and Medicaid. Last week, INSYS agreed to pay $225 million to settle its civil liability in connection with these allegations. The $225 million settlement breaks down as follows, $195 million to settle allegations that INSYS violated the False Claims Act, $28 million represents asset forfeiture, and the remaining $2 million re- results from a fine. In August 2018, a related civil case settled for $150 million. 
The wrongdoing largely stems from a speaker's program that INSYS operated from 2012 to 2015, purportedly to increase awareness of its brand, but which was allegedly used as a mechanism for bribing doctors to prescribe sepsis to more patients in higher doses. In one example, a New Hampshire doctor who did not prescribe any sepsis in the year prior to joining the speaker's program prescribed sepsis 672 times the following year. This doctor received $44,000 in payments from the speaker's program that year. The settlement also resolves the government's allegations that INSYS encouraged doctors to prescribe sepsis to patients who did not need it and lied to insurers about patient diagnoses to obtain reimbursements. The allegations against INSYS were brought to the government's attention by whistleblowers who filed five separate False Claims Act lawsuits in which the government intervened in April 2018. These whistleblowers will share in a portion of the government's recovery, although that share has not yet been determined. Whistleblowers Maria Guzman, Torney Anderson, and Christopher Connors were all former INSYS sales professionals. Whistleblower Melina Spalter was a former professional pain specialist at INSYS, and Sarah Lucan and Allison Erickson were both former employees of Prime Therapeutics, a company that processed Medicare Part D claims on INSYS' behalf. In addition to the $225 million settlement, Dan Levinson will be happy to know that the agency he previously led previously led is still on the job, and INSYS has also entered into a five-year corporate integrity agreement, which includes heightened penalties for any future breaches and submission to a third-party independent auditor. This case is part of a growing number of lawsuits against opioid companies and their executives in response to America's opioid addiction crisis, many of which have been initiated by whistleblower insiders like these six whistleblowers, without whom such schemes may not have been able to be detected. Vigilant eyes of doctors, nurses, sales representatives, billing administrators, and other healthcare professionals are essential to keeping the Medicare and Medicaid systems honest and sustainable. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Mary, very much. That was Mary Inman. She was calling in live from London. Mary is the famed whistleblower attorney. She is also the partner in the London office of Constantine Cannon. Reporting the latest news on the hot-button issue of social determinants of health is educator and author Alan Fink-Samnick. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everybody, from beautiful Las Vegas. I'm here with over 2,000 case managers and industry experts for the CMSA Annual Conference. Ron, we will be looking forward to seeing you later. The social determinants of health continue to be a hot topic, especially here with a thirst for data to leverage reimbursement and needed programming quite popular. And that data downpour continues. Rural communities were highlighted in a recent report from NPR, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Glaring issues were identified among those surveyed. 26% unable to access health care as needed, with 45% of those persons unable to afford a health care visit. Almost 20% unable to find a provider to access their insurance and geographic barriers to care for 25%. 40% had problems with medical bills, housing, or food insecurity. Despite technology's popularity, a digital divide remains with limited Wi-Fi, interoperability challenges, lack of devices or access to new platforms mean no way to view data on patient portals or to benefit from health, telehealth options. 
closure of rural hospitals, compromised care. And since 2010, 17 in Texas, 10 in Tennessee, 7 in Georgia. Over 440 rural nursing homes have closed or merged. The outcome? Patients warranting placement must go as far as 200 miles away from family and support. That distance promotes further isolation and compromises recovery. The report, Life in Rural America, lives on the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation website. In the reimbursement world, United Healthcare has been guiding providers to use the ICD-10 CMD codes. The June 2019 Network Bulletin offered guidance about the determinants and directs providers to use those designated codes. A table with each code and subcategory is listed. Public comment for IPPS 2020 closed on 6-4, with inquiring minds waiting to know whether CMS has approved Z59.0 for homelessness. Most expect it will be. This action is expected to cause a downpour of other code approvals, but the industry will welcome the deluge. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Alan, very much. That was consultant and author Alan Fink-Samnick. By the way, Alan has a new book on the subject, Social Determinants of Health, Case Management's Next Frontier. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, former Inspector General for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Dan Levinson, is making his first broadcast appearance and stepping down in May as healthcare's top watchdog. And so good morning, Dan. Thank you so very much for being on the broadcast this morning. And thank you for your 15 years of dedicated service in advancing, as you say, a culture of compliance in healthcare. Dan, good morning and welcome again. Good morning, Chuck, and thank you so much for having me on again. It's just wonderful to be able to appear one more time on Rack Monitor. Uh, you all have been such effective partners for the Inspector General's office. I was so much looking forward to the opportunity uh, to appear on the program immediately after the end of my tenure. It's, it's extremely important, I think, for all of our listeners uh, to be following very carefully the development of the care coordination effort by HHS. In one of our of the management challenges that uh, were issued by OIG last year, um, the office talked about ensuring value and integrity in managed care and other innovative healthcare payment and service delivery models. And in that regard, I was hoping that uh, people would pay attention. Uh, to the work that OIG has done over the last few years and following the developments with the Medicare Shared Savings Program Accountable Care Organizations and seeing how they can develop effectively in reducing spending and improving quality. Uh, a report from two years ago noted some of the progress that was being made in that area. And then most recently, and you can see this on the website at OIG this week, a report has been issued just last month using Health IT for care coordination insights from six Medicare accountable care organizations. It's really important that there be an opportunity uh, for people to follow this area uh, because it is developing as a very dynamic part of the regulatory sprint that's now going on. Thanks, Dan. That was former Inspector General for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Dan Levinson, who is making his first broadcast appearance and stepping down in May as healthcare's top watchdog. This morning, you heard Mr. Levinson speak about the compliance community for ensuring program integrity and also reminding all of us the government will continue to develop alternative models and they must be accompanied by, in his words, compliance practices that minimize the potential for fraud and abuse. 
And uh, on that note, we're going to end today's broadcast. We thank you for being with us today. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Alan Fink-Samnick, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Mary Inman, Dennis Jones, and uh, Nicole Emanuel. And, of course, our special guest, the former Inspector General for U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Dan Levinson, who chose Monitor Monday this morning to make his first broadcast appearance and stepping down in May as healthcare's top watchdog. Thank you very much for being with us. And remember... You can listen to all the Monitor Monday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you again for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.